is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We're now learning the main reasons why the Justice Department was so interested in all those documents former President Trump was keeping at his Mar-a-Lago estate. A redacted FBI affidavit says 14 of 15 boxes recovered contained classified documents, many of them top secret. The affidavit even hints at obstruction. We go in-depth into the affidavit and whether the feds have a solid criminal case against the former president. If you were hoping for some optimistic economic news to start your weekend, the Fed chairman ruined that plan. He says more pain is ahead. Remember yesterday when everyone says, oh, things are fine. It's all baked in. It'll be okay. And then this happens. So there we go. Moderna is mad at Pfizer, suing its rival over the COVID vaccine. Moderna says Pfizer copied their tech. If the election for L.A. mayor was held today, Karen Bass would really be ahead. She's a heavy favorite. We'll go in depth into a new poll. Do you watch, you read, you listen to too much news? Turn it off. Just not right now. Wait till the end of the yeah, show. Yeah, save that. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you go home today and you water the plants, do you talk to them? Turns out a lot of people do. Do they talk back? Well, take it to the lab if it talks back. <laughs> we start, we start with the FBI affidavit in the Mar-a-Lago search. Thane Rosenbaum is a CBS News legal analyst. Thane, thanks for being with us. Uh, I, I read through what's, I guess, left of the affidavit, because so much of it, as you know, is is redacted. But the main headline, in your view, from it is what? Well, it depends how you look at it, right? Because it's so heavily redacted, it doesn't tell you very much. It does intimate that the documents, some of which were not just classified, but they were top secret and special access. They have FISA codes and IS codes, which was a way of the Justice Department hinting that these are very serious charges. This is more than just the retention of classified documents. Um, but what people had hoped is if you're going to show us the affidavit, then make the case for why you raided or searched the home of a of a former president. And they just, you know, it's all redacted. We have no real answer to that. We have no real answer to what kind of documents specifically they were looking for or what specific crimes they thought the president committed. And maybe even most importantly, did they think that the evidence, the the documents could be destroyed or disseminated or shared with a foreign entity. These are all open questions. Remember, they haven't charged the president with anything. They're just they're ongoing investigations here. Were we really expecting to get any of that, though, at the end of the day? I mean, this is an ongoing investigation. And if the National Archive says, look, we took these boxes earlier, we had X amount of materials that shouldn't have been there in the first place. We believe he had more, and we believe that when you get there, you'll find, quote, evidence of obstruction. Well, that at least leads us down a path we've never been down before with a former president. Well, yeah, except that, again, you know, none of this would have come up had they charged him with something. He wasn't charged with a crime. So that's why they can't show you anything, because they don't want to impede the investigation. They use the word a roadmap. We don't want to give the opposition, the roadmap to where we're going. Uh, but, you know, look, your question leads to a next question, which is, even if the documents are classified and they're in the home of an ex-president, does the intent of what it was he was planning to do with them, does it matter? Or is it a purely a criminal act so severe that you would imprison a president simply by having possession of documents created while he was president? None of these questions have ever been answered before. They've never come up.
There was, it seems to me, though, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts. Uh, one interesting uh, thing that came out of uh, that that redacted document, one of the codes uh, and the explanation for that code uh, for the documents that were found inside Mar-a-Lago, uh, if I'm correct about this, refers to the fact that some of these documents could compromise human resources, which is a fancy way of saying spies uh, in other parts of the world that, that, that do intelligence work for the U.S. government. Uh, that would be sort of an interesting thing for a former president to want to have in his possession after leaving office, wouldn't it? Yeah. And in fact, that's the reason when the word the Espionage Act came up a week ago, right? At first, we kept hearing, oh, this violates the Presidential Records Act. But, you know, the Presidential Records Act isn't a criminal offense. It just says to the president, leave your stuff behind. It's the public really needs to keep it in one archived place. So then the Justice Department started throwing out real potential crimes to, in order to justify the search. And what you just said adds to that, right, adds credence to say, yeah, we're talking about something that is of the nature of the Espionage Act that actually involves national security uh, documents that might ultimately be shared uh, with spies, either our own or others, and we don't want to compromise ours. Thane Rosenbaum, CBS News legal analyst. Thane, thanks. The document says there's probable cause to believe evidence of obstruction would be found there. 184 documents were marked as classified, including handwritten notes from the former president. With us now is Richard Painter, who was the chief White House ethics counsel under George W. Bush. Richard, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. So uh, it's a heavily, as you know, redacted document. I, I kind of went through it. It was a quick read because there wasn't that much to read. So what, if anything, did it prove? Well, first, uh, it's quite clear that a very large uh, number of documents were removed uh, from uh, the White House, including classified documents, highly classified documents, uh, documents that may very well reveal our sources of intelligence information. So this is uh, classified information that would be very dangerous for foreign power or anyone associated with foreign power to get access to. Uh, furthermore, uh, the uh, affidavit refers to obstruction, obstruction of justice, obstruction of an investigation. We do not know the nature of the investigation that was being obstructed. Uh, we don't have the details on that. Uh, the Department of Justice is going to black out as uh, redacted enough information so we can't discern that. But this is a president who has been involved with obstruction of justice, uh, going back to the Russia investigation and the obstruction of justice outlined in part two of the Mueller report. He wasn't prosecuted for that. And uh, he just went ahead and did it again and again and again. So this fits into a broader pattern of conduct that's very concerning on the part of the former president. Is it getting harder to find, like, the innocent narrative here? Because even if you just threw a bunch of stuff in a box, which is not what you do with this kind of stuff, but even if that was what had happened, they had time to give more of it back. They gave the boxes back. They detailed how many of those were Mark's top secret. And then archives and the DOJ got involved, said, well, we think there's more. And so the Trump people say, OK, well, we put a lock on the door. It's fine. And this says, well, no, there were people in and out all the time. It was all over the house. I mean, we're getting further and further away from this, like, oops, this was a, a mistake. Uh, we've been through this before. President, uh, nothing like this with a former president or president, but uh, with leaks of classified information. And the rules are very, very clear. 
uh, President Bush asked me to give lectures to the entire White House staff uh, uh, after we had a scandal in 2005 with a leak of classified information about the identity of a CIA agent. And bottom line is uh, that you are never, ever allowed to take classified information home with you. Uh, classified information needs to be kept in a secure information facility, a SCIF. Now, a president, while he's president, might be able to set up a SCIF in his uh, summer residence, his winter residence, and so forth. Uh, but you don't just simply take it home with you and put it in a safe and keep it. That safe is not a secure information facility. And this is classified information. He never should have removed it with intent to keep it after the expiration of his term. He was not authorized to have it. It's a lot of classified information. And we have yet to know what he was going to do with it. Was he going to give it to a foreign power? Or was he just taking it for purposes of obstructing a federal criminal investigation? And if so, what is that nature of that investigation? What is he trying to hide? Well, there's a lot of information we don't know here, but there's no innocent explanation for what happened uh, with those documents. But let's say you are a, uh, and I know you're not, but let's say you are a Trump supporter. You're going to look at this news today and maybe even read the redacted document, which, you know, unless you read a lot between the darkened lines, doesn't tell you that much. Uh, and you're going to conclude probably that, OK, uh, what's the big deal? Well, we've been through this again and again with Donald Trump. I mean, what was the big deal with his obstruction of justice, the Russian investigation? What was, his big, was the big deal with Ukraine and, and trying to uh, withhold military aid from Ukraine to get them to get the dirt on Joe Biden? He got impeached for that. What's the big deal about uh, the uh, big lie about the election? Uh, January 6th. I mean, they're going to be people who believe anything. Uh, but if the Republicans are interested in uh, getting the White House again in 2024, they ought to look at Ron DeSantis or some other candidate. Uh, uh, Americans have had absolutely enough of Donald Trump. Richard Painter, who was um, chief White House ethics counsel under George W. Bush. My favorite paragraph yeah. is the one that says, for example, and then nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Told dark. The guy with the Sharpie, though, had to smile when he did that. Like, I'm going to leave these two. <laughs> Just these two words. Coming up, a new poll shows the gap in the L.A. mayor's race widening. And do you talk to your plants? Apparently, lots of people do. And we try to find out why. They grow faster. Yeah. Yeah. But what kind of conversation do you have? Hey, come on, guy. You can do it. Looking good. Okay. I don't know. Right now, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says more economic pain is on the way for people and for businesses. There could be job losses. He says more of the big interest rate hikes are coming. The Fed's looking to control inflation. Wall Street did not react well today. Gus Fauché, chief economist at PNC Financial Services Group. Gus, thanks for being with us. So I seem to remember a couple days ago this week, uh, you know, back in history, when the markets were doing okay and all the analysts were saying, you know what, whatever he's going to say is priced in already and we're feeling good and it's going to be fine. And then uh, he gives his speech and, and it was not fine today. Yeah, no, he was much more hawkish on inflation than markets were expecting. Uh, he mentioned what he called price stability, basically inflation, about eight or nine times in his speech, uh, and indicated that he said he's going to remain aggressive in raising interest rates until they've got inflation under control. Okay, when you say, though, that he was more aggressive or hawkish than people thought, uh, nonetheless, I mean, everybody knew that there was a very, you know, sort of small uh, a spectrum of things that he could do. And, and one of them was going to be to say that it was going to be a lot more increases as time goes by. I think a lot of people did expect that. Uh, so wasn't the market reaction a bit too much? 
I, I think the market has been underreacting over the past, you know, few weeks. I think that they were perhaps discounting the probability of Fed rate increases. I think they're maybe looking at it a little bit more realistically now. Uh, and so I think Powell just kind of set them straight somewhat and said, you know, look, this is not going to be easy. There will be pain involved, to use that word pain. Uh, and I think markets are coming around and recognizing that he's very serious about this. Do we have an idea uh, when you do like an aggregate of all the headlines out there, whether we have reached peak inflation or whether we're going to start to come down or, you know, maybe we've just kind of plateaued for a while? I think we are starting to see inflation slow. So we got some inflation numbers uh, today. Uh, we actually saw overall prices decline in July. Uh, they slowed on a year-over-year basis, still very elevated, still near the highest inflation in 40 years. But with gas prices coming down, I think there is better news on inflation in the months ahead. It's still going to be much higher than what the Fed would like. Uh, but I think we will get back down to that 2%, and we will see inflation slow substantially later this year and then again in 2023. So now that the uh, you know the market knows what the intent is of the Federal Reserve, uh, is it your sense that we are in for a sort of downward march, or will people come back on Monday and Tuesday and think, well, okay, we overreacted, now we got a lot of cheap stock, and it'll go right back up again? Um, I don't think it's going to go right back up again. I think there's going to be a lot of volatility. I think that what the Fed does is very dependent on what we get in terms of the labor market, in terms of what readings we get on in inflation. And I think that there is going to be, you know, big variation day to day, week to week, as we get new numbers on where the economy is headed. Uh, given all of the uncertainty out there, I think that investors should continue to expect high volatility going forward. Are people still spending like uh, this isn't happening and they want to spend money and go and do things? Or are they just spending because they have to because everything is so much more expensive? Um, we did see, you know, solid growth in consumer spending in July, uh, even, uh, you know, and, and with low inflation, it looked even better. Um, you know, people have been spending down the savings that they accumulated over the past couple of years with stimulus payments and limited opportunities to spend. Uh, they've been borrowing a little bit more on their credit cards, but generally uh, consumer credit quality is good. So spending is holding up. And I think with the strong labor market and with inflation slowing, I think in, uh, spending will continue to increase. But what we're seeing is consumers buying more services and fewer goods just because we bought so many goods over the past couple of years. Gus Fauchet, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services Group. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Moderna and Pfizer, the two pharmaceutical companies with the mRNA vaccines for COVID available here in the U.S. Moderna, though, apparently has got a bit of a problem with Pfizer. Yeah, it's suing Pfizer, accusing Pfizer of copying its technology to make its own COVID vaccine. Moderna says that's a patent violation. Pfizer is not commenting on the lawsuit. With us is Kevin Noonan, who's co-chair of MBHB Law Firm's Biotechnology and Pharmaceuticals Practice Group. He's also a molecular biologist. Kevin, thanks for being with us. So to try to keep this as simple as we can for everybody, uh, we're dealing with a, you know, a new kind of vaccine, right, messenger RNA, uh, which, of course, both the Moderna vaccine, COVID vaccine, and Pfizer vaccines are. But I, I seem to remember way back when these vaccines were, were still not approved, didn't a lot of the early you know, uh, development on the technology come at taxpayer expense through the government? 
Yeah, people say that all the time, but it's, it's really not true. Imagine it's a thousand mile race. You get the first 500 feet with taxpayer money and the rest of the race is, uh, is really investment. And if you read, there's some books that have come out about the, the vaccines and exactly what they had to do to do that. In fact, the complaint in this case, uh, Moderna lays out all the time and money that it spent to actually get these to work. So uh, it, it's easy to say, oh, the, the taxpayers paid for it, but it really isn't true. So what does uh, Moderna have to do to, to get this across that finish line? Do they have to say, here's when we started way back when, years ago, and what? And we're going to look at like a couple key features, and these are, are totally us and, and not you guys. Well, interestingly, the, the, one of the patents that they're, that they're asserting against Pfizer has one uh, chemical that's in it that normally isn't in RNA. And it's, it, I would assume that's what really makes it work. That's why you actually had this get across the finish line and be a useful um, vaccine. And after all, um, this is exactly what Pfizer did. So it suggests that uh, whatever this, this change is that Moderna discovered and figured out how to, how to get into their vaccine is really necessary. So that's why their argument is, well, we, we developed this, we invested in it, we, our investors spent the money to do it. We can't just let somebody, anybody come and, and use that IP without us getting our licensing fee. Are these sort of disputes when it comes to rival vaccines, especially new ones, typical? I think vaccines have been really until the pandemic, vaccines were a lost leader. The number of of, uh, companies that made vaccines have been plummeting in the last 50 years. And part of that's because the vaccines work so well. You didn't need them quite as much. You know, people didn't have polio. They didn't have smallpox. Uh, The COVID stuff has really made it much, much more in both the government's mind, the people's mind. Um, but this, this sort of, this sort of uh, patent litigation happens with pharmaceuticals all the time because it costs so much to bring them to market that you have to defend them once you get them there. Do you, based on what we've seen so far, do you think that Moderna has got Pfizer on this one? Oh, I think that if, if, put it this way, it, it's a very specific claim to a very specific thing. And if that's what Pfizer did without a license, um, then, then the answer would be yes. But keep in mind that Pfizer gets its turn at bat as well. And it can try to convince the court or the patent office that the patents are invalid. Um, that's the other side of the coin. It's the risk you take when you sue on your patent. They can be invalidated. So that's what courts are for. I, I'm curious, though, how does one prove that a patent is, if it's already patented, invalid? Well, you know, it's, it's a complicated situation. So you say, well, usually it comes down to that there's something somebody else did in the past. And you say, well, either they did it um, already or it would have been obvious, it would have been, you know, anybody could have done that. I will tell you, I don't have a lot of hope for those because the, the people who are representing Moderna are very experienced people, uh, they're lawyers, and I have a feeling that all of that's been buttoned up pretty well, but I'm not going to uh, say that, well, Pfizer can't do it. It's just probably a little unlikely to be able to do it. For people driving around in their cars going, okay, I've had three or four Pfizer shots, I'm going to get number five when it comes out, and six next year, and seven the year after that. Does that change anything for them? No, actually. And that's the good thing. Moderna was very wise and you can call it corporate responsibility, social responsibility if you want. They have absolutely nothing that's happened up until I think March of this year. They're not asking for any damages. They're not asking for any money from Pfizer for everything they did for the government. Um, so I think that my guess is that a lot of this, because this, this technology can be used for the next vaccine and the next vaccine and the next vaccine, is more looking to the future. They're not looking, I don't think, to get the money, all the money that was spent or earned um, in the past two and a half years. That pretty much, they've said, we don't want that. And they're not asking for an injunction. 
All they're asking for is damages to the extent they've been accrued and probably to get a licensing fee from Pfizer. So man on the street, you'll get your Pfizer vaccines. That's what I got was a Pfizer vaccine. You'll get them without any trouble. Kevin Noonan, co-chair of MBHB Law Firm's Biotech and Pharmaceuticals Practice Group, also a molecular biologist. The November election fast approaching. Voters in the city of Los Angeles will select a new mayor. It is down to two now, Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. Caruso had some momentum once, but a new UC Berkeley poll finds Bass is growing her lead, shows her ahead 43% to his 31, nearly a quarter of the voters undecided. Dan Schnur, political communications specialist, USC professor. Dan, thanks for being back on the show. I think I remember talking to you right after the uh, primaries, and you were remarking, you know what, the general's a whole different ball game. Uh, is that sort of what we're seeing here? Uh, that, that's exactly what we're seeing now. And I don't claim to be prescient at all. But what we have been seeing in the days, in the weeks since the election are two things. Number one, the day after the election, as I know both of you remember, Caruso actually slight, finished slightly ahead on the day after vote. And as more and more mail votes were counted, Bass not only caught Caruso, but ended up with a lead of roughly seven points. Now our lead's growing even further. And it's very clear that while Los Angeles, Los Angeles residents have very deep crime and homelessness, they, this is still a very progressive left-leaning community. And they haven't yet heard anything from Caruso to convince them to put aside their broad or embrace his particular solutions on those issues. His challenge in the fall is to convince them that he knows how to make L.A. safe again. Is is this a race that will be won or lost in any one particular part of the city, for example, the Valley? Well, one of the most notable things in the poll, and I, I know both of you know also, is that the Valley, which in the in Caruso's strongest regional base and has historically been the part of the city that has most strongly supported moderate to conservative. But that was moving toward Bass, too. And once again, I'll come back to the same two issues. On most things, Angelinos prefer Bass. Even the Valley does as well. But in the San Fernando Valley, even more than the rest of the city, voters are concerned about... I think we lost... Uh, yeah, let's try and, uh, you know, we'll put you on hold for just a second there, Dan, because your phone's... Uh in and out and we'll see if we can fix this uh fix this but he was saying yes the, the valley is important and the valley's been trending a little bit towards bass lately right. more than it was before and it, it was cutting out but he's come back to the same point twice you know if caruso has a, a line to, to to go through here it's crime are you concerned about safety and he's seen more favorable in that category anyways but bass has pretty much the others kind of locked up right yeah and, and let me mention while we're waiting for for uh, dan that knx is hosting a one-hour debate between karen bass and rick caruso that's on thursday october 6th and we'll have more details uh, to come uh, i think we got dan back with us Are you there yeah, i'm so sorry for that guys no, no. i am back no that happens uh so you were in the process of, of, of we were talking about the valley and how significant it is or is not to the outcome of this race. And I think you were saying that uh, on most things, the Valley was sort of with Karen Bass, but there was a concern in the Valley more than perhaps perhaps other parts of the city on crime. Is that right? That's precisely right. And the issues of crime and homelessness, which dominate voters' concerns in the rest of the LA, uh, the rest of Los Angeles, are even more central 
to voter priorities in the San Fernando Valley. And the fact that Caruso has lost ground in the Valley since the primary means one of two things. Either Bass is, Bass is successfully reassuring them that she is capable of taking on those challenges, or more, that Caruso has not yet successfully made the case that he'd be better at taking them on. Before Caruso can reach out to a broader geographic audience, he has to nail down the valley. And if he can't convince them that crime and homelessness are the issues that he can solve, not hers, then it's going to be very difficult for him in other parts of Los Angeles. Is this looking like a Republican versus Democrat race in, in some of the splits we're seeing, even though it's it's not? It, it certainly is. Uh, Caruso is a Democrat, of course, and there's a, other conversation to be had about his political history. But even though he has a D after his name now, most voters, are and Los Angeles voters, particularly Democrats, are regarding him as if he were a Republican. And the issue on which he's being hurt most, given that partisan divide, is the issue of abortion. Given the Supreme Court Dobbs decision earlier this year, Republicans all over the country are scrambling to reassure voters on that issue. Caruso, who has said that he would not do anything to restrict abortion rights in Los Angeles, is a devout Catholic and does have some history on this issue. He's going to have to figure out a way to defuse the issue before it turns Karen Bass into the next mayor. As we did point out with the poll, a quarter of voters are undecided. So, so this is not by any means a done deal for either candidate. Oh, no. There's you know, 10 weeks left until Election Day. And with an undecided vote of that size, there's no question that Caruso can win those voters over on the crime and homelessness issue that we talked about. But what ought to concern him is if you look a little bit deeper into the Times poll, you see that Bass has a 12-point lead among all voters, but among likely voters, which generally tend to skew a little bit more rightward, her lead is even larger. And so Caruso not only has to win over the majority of those undecided voters, he has to either win over some of her current supporters or, more likely, to convince some of Bass's more progressive supporters not to vote at all. Also can't count him out, though, just in a sheer resources perspective, can we? No, of course not. And the amount of money that Caruso has spent in this race is already historic. And for relatively low-information voters who tend to be less likely to vote, he'll have an immense advantage. But that kind of financial edge tends to be most helpful in races that aren't being covered heavily by the news media. When there's a lot of news attention, such as the type of coverage that you guys provide the campaign, the ads are still helpful, but not to the same degree. So the money will help Caruso, but not nearly as much the more public and news media attention the race receives. Dan Schner, political communications specialist, USC professor. Again, our debates with the candidates October 6th. Looking forward to it. Yes. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Do not turn off the radio station, uh, but maybe, like, step away from the news just a little bit sometimes. You mean, like, now? Not now. Oh, I said, do well, not turn it off. So, like, later? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And and the reason is because... Take news... a weekend or something. <laughs> a weekend, yeah. A new study from Texas Tech University finds people who have an obsessive 
urge to constantly check the news, they're more likely to suffer from stress, anxiety, bad physical health. It's called doom scrolling for a reason. With us is study co-author Brian McLaughlin, professor of advertising at the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech. Brian, thanks for being with us. So uh, it's not a good thing to be too addicted to news? <laughs> no, there's certainly some uh, downsides to it. Um, and it's not necessarily the, the amounts you you consume. So we're not saying don't listen to the radio, don't follow the news. There's certainly important functions of it. It's uh, good to be tuned in. Uh, but we're really focusing on how people connect to the news. And it's people that become a little bit too emotionally involved, uh, mentally involved, that become a little bit obsessive about it. They can't ever put the phone down because they're checking the news so much. Um, that's when the kind of constant stress starts arising. And that's when it starts to become uh, kind of concerning for their mental and physical health. Yeah, let's talk about the phone and all of social media. How much has that contributed, especially over the last few years? Because this is not like you said, you know, wake up and, and figure out what's going on. Turn on the radio station or watch the news at night. Read the newspaper. Uh, this is constantly on Twitter, right? And we know what happens on, on some of these or Facebook, pick whatever. Uh, it's the loudest voices and often the voices that are saying the world is ending. It's all terrible that are going to get amplified the most. Yeah, absolutely. That that kind of accessibility you're talking about is a huge factor here. Right? And the 24-hour cycle has been around for a little bit now. Um, so it's not just the the kind of constant scrolling. It's the ability for people to check in all the time. Like I said, in bed, while you're with your family, while you're at work. It's just kind of the the process where you maybe have a hard time disassociating from it and it's bleeding into your everyday life. And as you mentioned, right, the, the negativity is what attracts people the most. They tend to pay attention to the negative news. And that does get amplified on social media, um, both in terms of what people broadcast and what people pay attention to, and as well as with algorithms. So it kind of leads to this vicious cycle. How do we know it's not the other way around? How do we know that people who are normally anxious and stressed out don't, for one reason or another, take solace in looking at news all the time? Uh, I mean, we're not saying that it can only go one way, right? We're not saying that uh, because people turn on the news, it's causing all these problems they never would otherwise had. Certainly people that have anxieties um, that are more prone to kind of feeling anxious about things might be more prone to checking in. Uh, in terms of what we did in our study, though, we did control for personality. We controlled for neuroticism. So we're taking, we're kind of accounting for those effects of the personality types that might be leading to some of the kind of negative outcomes uh, as well. What about for people who work in news? I mean, we saw plenty of retirements or just saying, you know what, I got to change careers over the course of the pandemic. It's like, I just couldn't do it anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because of just the constant discussion and thinking about the negativity. Um, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, because people can watch the news and uh, listen to the news all the time. And then there's doing the news, which in that case, it's your job and you are completely surrounded 24 seven almost with the bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can't personally speak to that experience, but yeah, I would imagine it, it becomes really hard to, to turn it off, right? To stop thinking about it. And that's that's really kind of what we're trying to focus on is people's abilities to step away and get a little break from it. Um, because, you know, when things happen, when COVID happens and people do need to pay attention, it's good to know what's going on. It's good to know what might be happening. Um, but if you can't ever get a break from it, if you can't ever get to that place where you're kind of relaxed, calm yourself down, enjoying things around you, um, then it can become overwhelming. 
Yeah, I think I also I think Mike, what you're kind of referring to is like here in the studio, for example, we've got like what ten monitors, <laughs> <laughs> you know, computers. Uh, we have our phones, so we're we're uh, we are drowning in news. That can't be good. It's <laughs> not good. It's not good. <laughs> can't, can't be good. How do people step away and uh, get some of that quiet time you were talking about? And back to the phones. Maybe cut down on your alerts so it's not dinging like every hour that there's some big story happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, different people might have certain functionalities enabled that kind of draw them in. So uh, we think the first thing starts with just awareness, right? Just kind of coming to understand how the news is affecting you. Um, a lot of times people, you know, they know the news isn't good for them. They know it's stressing them out. They might not understand the extent of it. And they might not be so conscious of how habitual it's come, right? People kind of just out of habit are constantly checking the news. It's just become second nature for people. And so starting to pay attention to that and starting to understand how you're doing it and starting to be aware of how you're, it's affecting you is a good first step. Um, some people might need to take breaks as it is. Um, we're not telling people to stop consuming the news, but usually if you're doing it compulsively, if you're doing it every five minutes, it's probably too much. Um, you know, then other things like just learning to be mindful, like uh, we've had some preliminary evidence that mindfulness is uh, a good buffer against uh, problematic news consumption. Um, so things like mindfulness training are kind of everyday things that people can do quite easily that might help them just to be kind of aware how it's affecting them and just to learn to kind of center a little bit and focus on the things around them rather than kind of concerns and dangers that aren't immediately present for them. Brian McLaughlin, professor of advertising, College of Media and Communication, Texas Tech. Go for a hike this weekend. Relax yourself. If you want your plants to grow, you maybe water them. Well, not maybe. You should water them. Get some, <laughs> some sunshine. Here's some cutting edge advice. <laughs> yeah. and, Take and, it from us. And you're supposed to, they say, uh, talk to them. I got a plant here. Hello, plant. You're a good looking plant. That one is in rough shape, though. What we do you found him in the hallway. What do you think of the stock market slide? You <laughs> <laughs> could use a talking to. Yeah, it's drooping. <laughs> uh, if you think it sounds weird, a lot of people would disagree. New survey from trees.com finds nearly half of people surveyed. They talk to their trees and their plants. Many of them say, yeah, they think it's going to help them grow. With us to talk about people's connection to their plants is Casey Case, landscape architect, president of Gates & Associates in Walnut Creek up in the Bay Area. Casey, thanks for being here. Do you talk to the plants? I absolutely talk to plants, yes. Okay, <laughs> what do you say? Because I have a plant here, and so far it's not very responsive. He's trying to get it to grow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that people have relationships with plants like they do with pets, right? I mean, you pay attention to them because they're in your living space and they grow when you water them and give them light. So I think there's a relationship with them that's similar to that. And I think that plants really change how you experience an environment as well, kind of like pets do, right? So I use plants as a tool for doing design and creating experiences. And I think that maybe we're spending so much more time in our homes than we were a couple years ago that people have rediscovered plants and how much <laughs> they can change a space and and in that effort they're like i want to keep this plant alive they might give it a name and make sure that they actually take care of it and in turn end up talking to it yeah does that <laughs> and i mean pun fully intended does that grow over time plant gets bigger your apartment or your house feels more lived in suddenly or the vine's gone the bookshelf it's doing that kind of thing you're like well this is kind of nice for sure right i mean i think when we're doing 
designs of outdoor spaces. Some of the opportunities we have where there are mature trees or like some really grown in architectural elements to the plants. We tried to do everything we can to save them because it gives it so much more depth and age, you know? So I think that people, you know, pick up these plants from Trader Joe's and when they give them some love and talk to them for a little while before you know it, there are 18 because they've spawned little babies and they planted <laughs> those as well, you know? <laughs> so my, I, I didn't name this plant. Is that what I'm doing wrong? Harry, how you doing, Harry? <laughs> how you there doing, you dude? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now not, it'll do well. Now, now it's going to do really yeah. well. Do you talk different ways to different plants? I don't know that I do. I think I talk to plants in a similar way that I talk to my dogs, you know, like, oh, you look like you need some water. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Do you remember this study from, I don't know, but it made the news, I feel like a few years back, and we were talking about this in the newsroom, that someone actually tried to, like, research if you talked to a plant and they had the whole thing when they didn't talk to these guys on the left side of the room, they talked to the ones on the right, and the ones on the right grew faster. Was that an actual thing? I I don't know if that was an actual thing, but what I think could be happening is I think that where you put your focus and effort, you see growth, right? Like literally in plants. So I wonder if when you're talking to a plant, you're looking at it more closely, you're spending more time paying attention to how it's doing, you may actually end up tending to it. Better, You're right? a better plant on, person if you talk to the plant. Casey, on a, on a, on like, or if you pay attention to your plant. Yeah. <laughs> on like a really bad day, have you talked to the plants and they, you know, like talk back? <laughs> Not yet. You hear a rustling <laughs> Maybe on a really good day, yeah. that might happen. <laughs> um, Easy plants to not kill for the crowd that's driving around right now going, you know what? I've never been able to keep one for more than two weeks after I got it at Trader Joe's. So as far as indoor houseplants, my two go-tos is what is called a spider plant, and it can do dark conditions, it can do a lot of sunlight, it doesn't need constant talking to and tending, it just needs the occasional watering. Um, The other one I'm a big fan of is pothos, it's similar, it can do light conditions, it likes to hang and droop, so it looks like beautiful on a shelf. And what I do as a landscape architect tends to be designing with plants outside. My favorite go-to plant is called a lamandra. It looks like a grass, which is very in vogue when we're California drought tolerant, right? But it doesn't actually need to be cut back like so many grasses need to in order to be successful and grow. And it's evergreen. So it just looks great all the time, doesn't need a lot of water, doesn't need a lot of maintenance. There are people going, perfect, that's exactly the one I want. What what do you call a plant that looks like it's dead? (laughs) Because we've got one here. (laughs) I think that's why it's not... Yeah, I think that's why it's not, like, responding to to what I'm saying. Compost. That's the name of our plant. Compost. Compost. Oh, that's not nice. (laughs) Maybe we can bring it back. I don't know. I think we could. That looks kind of, you know, dead. (laughs) Well, it's been here for a while. It's struggled through half the pandemic. All right. Casey, thank you. Casey Case, landscape architect, president of Gates and Associates in Walnut Creek up in the Bay Area. Now I feel badly because I've insulted the plant. Well, you know, let me look at it later. Well, it looks like it needs a lot of help. It does. Look at it. It's all. Yeah, I see it. All right. We'll work on this. We'll workshop that little guy and see if we can bring him back and put it on the Internet. All right. Talk to your plants and uh, we'll be back next week. This is In Depth. We'll be back uh, Monday.